Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading today is Hebrews 2, 14 through 3, 1. Hebrews 2, 14 through 3, 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1002. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Hebrews 2, 14 through 3, 1. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. All right, so we are beginning a uh, short three-part series on our values this morning. So this week, well, what are our three values? First one, gospel. Okay, there's no cheater up there. Okay. Gospel, community, and mission. Okay, great. So this morning we're going to focus on gospel. We like to do this every year to 18 months. Um, also seems fitting with our build, building issues that we're considering. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we normally have our service from uh, 10.30 to 12. We're going to be done early this morning so that we can have a special kind of family meeting. So that's not typical, but that's what we're doing this morning. So we'll be done around 11.30 so that we can get started with that meeting. Um, but again, uh, short series here for the next few weeks on our values. And this morning, the first one, on the gospel. So the gospel is everything to us here at Bethel. And we've sung of this, and Pastor Tyler prayed about it. Um, we've got nothing if we don't have the gospel, if we don't have Jesus. So what is the gospel? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We are sinners all. We are in need of saving from sin and death and hell. There is no salvation under there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So that's what it says in Acts 4.12. Or Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it's the only and the most wonderful solution to our deepest problem our sin and our separation from God. So he's holy, we're not. He's righteous, we're unrighteous. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot atone for our sins. We can't justify ourselves, make ourselves righteous and right with God. Can't earn his favor. Can't balance the scales and climb the ladder to heaven. We need a savior. We needed a rescue mission. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's exactly what we have in Christ is a savior. So the gospel is how we are saved. It's 
how we're brought into right relationship with God. It's the good news of grace. We only have to receive it, repent and believe, turn our back on going our own way, trying to save ourselves or live for ourselves or whatever, and trust in Jesus, run to him. Like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you haven't trusted Jesus like that, we would encourage you. You can do that today. You can receive that gift today. If you want to talk to somebody, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards about that. So the gospel is how we get right with God, but it's also the power to grow. It's the power to change. It's the power to persevere. So we do those things, grow and change and persevere and endure by God's grace through faith in Jesus. He enables us to. So as Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. Okay? So you can see why the gospel is our first and primary value at Bethel. It's central to everything. It's like the animating power for all of life and everything we do as a church. And we've got to keep it central because I don't know about you, but have you noticed sometimes it's hard to keep it central? So as we consider this morning the gospel from Hebrews 4, let me ask you a few questions. Do you ever drift spiritually? Have you ever struggled with that? Are you struggling with that right now? Are you ever tempted to shrink back in unbelief? Do you ever find yourself spiritually sluggish or listless, kind of lacking motivation and earnestness and zeal? Do you ever lack assurance before God that you're really safe in Christ? Do you ever get spiritually weary and just find your hands kind of drooping and your knees buckling, spiritually speaking? Do you ever find that the worries and cares of the world, kind of life and stuff and things, can just weigh you down and choke out your spiritual vitality? Anybody ever experience that? Do you ever find yourself getting cold and kind of hard to the truth and promises of the gospel? They're sweet, but they just don't taste so sweet. Do you ever find yourself entangled in the same old sins? Get discouraged? Make you want to give up? Like I'm spinning my wheels, I'm never getting anywhere, maybe I'm never going to get anywhere. Well, if you resonate with any of that, then the book of Hebrews is for you <laughs> and for me. And Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is like this wonderful tonic for souls that struggle, just like these ways I've um, described. So let's read it here. That passage that Tyler read, you'll see, is a really beautiful complement to our passage. But let's read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, those three verses, and then we'll walk through it. So it's just, uh, I think it's on the same page as, yeah, the opposite side, page 1003, if you're using the Pew Bible. Hebrews 4. Verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a really beautiful passage. There's so much grace in here. Do you see the logic in these three verses? We could summarize it like this. We'll kind of come back to this sentence. What we have is how we hold fast. What we have is how we hold fast. Or you could kind of call the sermon to have and to hold, you know. Okay, is anybody awake? Anybody catch that? All right. So let me just illustrate what I'm talking about with a little story that I heard um, a while back. So there was this guy that had to, to cross a frozen river, and he didn't know how thick the ice was, but he had to cross. So he was being really careful. He's down on all fours, you know, kind of crawling along, just listening for ice to crack and pop, and, you know, maybe he's going to break and he's going to fall through and die. So he's about halfway across this river, and he hears this racket, (laughs) this noise, like crazy noise behind him. And here comes this guy in a wagon pulled by these two horses, big heavy load in the back of the wagon. Just I should have Pastor Tyler say this, but yee-haw! Like he just, boom, he's just going right across the river, no hesitation, right past them, up the other side. Because that ice was thick. So the point is, you can crawl your way to heaven on all fours. You can be tentative but the ice is thick. There's a better way. God's promises are sure. We can bank on them with confidence. So that's what we need to know if we're going to do hold fast. We need to know something if we're going to do something. Knowing what we have is the key to holding fast in faith and persevering to the end and doing it in sort of like a yeehaw manner, which is we could all use a little more yeehaw, yeah? Amen? Okay, all right. So here we go. What we have, point one, verse 14. Remember, what we have is key to holding fast. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So this assumes all kinds of things, but it's not terribly complicated. So in the Old Testament, God's people had priests. God had set this up, right? They also had a high priest So that high priest went into the Holy of Holies, whether in the tabernacle or in the temple, once a year on the Day of Atonement as an act of merciful mediation, right? So sacrifice was made. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement between God and his people so that he could dwell with them, so so he could forgive them and dwell with them. So the high priest would pass through the veil that was between the holy place and the most holy place. He would pass through into the presence of God in order to make atonement. But, you know, the blood of bulls and goats was a provisional setup. Blood doesn't really take away sins. It was all shadows and type, types of what was to come. So Jesus, whose very name means that Yahweh saves. He's the eternal Son of God. He's our great high priest. He's not just a high priest. He's a great high priest. 
He passed through not the veil to some earthly copy of the throne room of God. He passed through to the very throne room of God. So after making purification for sins, his blood shed to cover us, the real final atonement, he passed through and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, like it says in Hebrews 1. So his blood really did make atonement for our sin once for all, not the repeated year-by-year sacrifice of the old covenant priests. So the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, they were just shadows of the real. Okay, the high priest passed through the curtain of the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the people, but Jesus entered the immediate presence of God And he actually is that atoning sacrifice, his blood shed for us. So he accomplished the ultimate, the real, the final, the effective atonement for us. So look at a few verses that underline this theme in the book of Hebrews. Flip ahead to chapter 9. We see what we have, how great this high priest is and what he's done for us, what we have in him. Hebrews 9.24, just a few pages later. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's our mediator. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. He's interceding for us. So the high priest had to do it year by year. Jesus only had to do it once. Look back in chapter 9 to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We need to know what we have. One more passage. Look at Hebrews 7, starting in verse 25. This is sweet. We need to just savor this. Consequently, 725, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, again, work of a priest, this mediatorial role, bringing the sins of the people to God for his merciful intervention, and bringing that merciful intervention back to the people of God. So remember how the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar and also at times sprinkle the blood on the people. So it's this mediatorial role. Well, if you're going to do that mediatorial role, you've got to have a relationship with God and with the people. And Jesus had both perfectly. Fully God, fully man, the mediator par excellence. And isn't it great that Jesus is the one interceding for us? 
He is the quintessential priest. He alone is perfectly qualified. So Hebrews is, the book of Hebrews just is wanting to make that so wonderfully clear, showing that he is great and he is able, he's exalted, but he's also sympathetic and compassionate and he's walked in our shoes. So we see this full deity, full humanity in the first few chapters. We see it even here in verse 14. Since then we have this great, he's greater than any other human priest, but he is a priest. He is fully man. He's passed through the heavens. No other priest has done that. He's divine. He's Jesus. He's the son of God. So he's Jesus. He's God made flesh, but he's the son of God. He's exalted. So uh, Anselm in the 11th century said this, the restoration of humans to God could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. Okay? That's what we have in Jesus. This is who we have. This great high priest who is perfectly qualified and wonderfully willing to provide all that we truly need. We have the best possession in the universe. Christ is ours today and forever. If he's your savior, he is yours now and forever. So Andrew Murray, I love this, South African pastor in the 19th century, he wrote, you own him. He's yours, your very own, wholly yours. You may use him with all he is and has. If you know something, you'll be empowered to do something. We need to know what we have if we're going to hold fast. Okay? And then I love this quote by Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor who also lived in the 19th century. It was a good century. All right. Um, he said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So do you see how knowing what we have should embolden us, it should empower us to hold on, to hold fast, which is where the text goes next. So Again, verse 14, point number two, let us hold. So since then we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What we have is how we hold fast, how we hold on, how we endure, how we remain faithful. So we need to know something if we're going to do something. We need to know what we have if we're going to hold fast and persevere. So the burden of this passage is don't let go. Don't give up. Don't lose heart and let go and drift. Look at what you have. Hold on. So this book, the book of Hebrews, is in the Bible to help us run the race that's set before us with endurance, with our eyes fixed on Jesus all the way home to our eternal rest. Hebrews 12, 12 says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. In other words, all this stuff you know about Jesus, 
that's yours, all this grace, all this power, all this strength, if you know that, you can run. So remember, what we have is how we hold fast. The writer goes on to tell us more of what we have in Jesus in verse 15. He does it by first telling us what we don't have. So look, point number three, what we don't have, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So listen, we don't have a compassionless mediator. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have an aloof savior. He's not indifferent. He does not have a hair-trigger temper. Your mediator, your high priest, does not have a don't bother me. What do you want? Sort of disposition. You could never come to him too much. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Oh, no. We have a high priest who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. He's walked today in our shoes. He understands our weaknesses and our temptations. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. And he doesn't just know it in concept, because he made us. He knows it by experience. That's the heart and character of God. He set things up in such a way. He ensured that he would know from firsthand experience about our weaknesses and temptations. How good is God that he would do that? Take on flesh. Now, do any of you or have any of you ever found yourselves getting a little skeptical when you hear this verse or read this verse? One who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Maybe you want a footnote. Perhaps you've thought, well, Jesus wasn't tempted exactly like me. He was never married. Or he was not as single. He wasn't single as long as I've been. Or we could go on and on with examples, right? At the root level, Jesus dealt with every kind of temptation. Let me just give one quick example. There are lots of different kinds of sexual temptation. But at the root level, they're all the same because it's about fidelity to God, trusting his goodness and his wisdom, right? So Jesus was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. Now, there might be another way that you would be, that you might tend to kind of write this sympathetic ministry off or just downplay it, maybe more like we downplay it. I, I think I did this for a while. Something like this. Well, you know, he was tempted, but in the end he was God. He wasn't going to sin. I mean, it was almost like when things got tough, he, you know, he had like the S under his shirt, you know, Savior, super Savior, man. He was the God man. I mean, he could fall back on that, right? Well, let me let C.S. Lewis and Wayne Grudem set you straight on this, okay, if you've ever struggled with this. They set me straight. First C.S. Lewis, then Wayne Grudem. Here's C.S. Lewis. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. 
Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And then Wayne Grudem. Many theologians have pointed out that only he who successfully resists the temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than one who attempts to lift it and drops it. So any Christian who has successfully faced the temptation to the end knows that it is far more difficult than giving into it at once. So it was with Jesus. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end and triumphed over it. The temptations were real, even though he did not give in to them. In fact, they were most real because he did not give in to them. Can you imagine how if you have a little bit of that skepticism or tendency to downplay the sympathetic ministry of Christ, that you wouldn't know what you have? You wouldn't know how much sympathy you have. And if you don't know how much sympathy you have, you wouldn't be empowered to hold on in the same way as if you did know. Because we hold on because of what we know, what we have. So, what we have in Christ is how we hold fast. So in light of what we have in Christ, last point, verse 16, let us draw near. Look at verse 16 with me. Let us then... In light of what we have in Christ, this great high priest, sympathetic high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need or to help a well-timed help, um, the right help at the right time. So this verse, there is no reason for hesitation. There's no reason for reticence. No reason to kind of keep God at arm's length or kind of operate in orbit, you know, just kind of, well, this far or no farther. No, draw near and do it with confidence. That, this hit me this morning, I think, in a way that it never has before. You are commanded to draw near with confidence. Isn't that great? Have you ever thought about that? I want you to be confident about me. Like, that's not a harsh, burdensome thing. That's a loving thing that he would command us to have confidence in him and come with confidence. How merciful, how gracious is he that he would say that? Well, what is this confidence? Uh, Again, Andrew Murray, I love what he says here about this confidence. It is the unhesitating assurance that there is nothing that can hinder us from drawing near to God's throne without fear or without doubt. There's nothing hindering hindering us from drawing near with no other feeling but that of the childlike liberty which a child feels in speaking to its father. It is the inward participation in Christ's entrance into the Father's presence. This boldness is the essence of a healthy Christian life. So God is saying, 
don't you dare be tentative about me. Don't doubt and wonder if I'm going to leave or forsake you. Don't question the steadfastness of my love. It is not. The gospel is not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me on my good days. He loves me not on my bad days. No. Don't doubt the mercy and grace of God. And don't allow yourself to be plagued by doubt about his grace toward you. Does he love me? Am I the real thing? Of course we need to be trusting him, but if we're trusting him, no reason to doubt. I mean, why do we do this? Why do we kind of, why are we standoffish with God rather than draw near? Have you ever thought about that? Do you ever do that? Because we don't feel worthy? Well, to receive mercy So he's assuming you need mercy, which means he assumes you're sinful. We all are. (laughs) So no need to hold out. No need to hold him out at arm's length. Draw near with confidence. So we've got to keep the gospel at the center, shaping everything that we are, everything that we do. We've got to trust him, drawing near, getting the mercy and the grace that we need. So perhaps you resonate with this other statement by Andrew Murray quoting him a lot here this morning, but good stuff. What is the ordinary experience of those who set themselves with their whole heart to live for God? It happens very often that it is only then they begin to find out how sinful they are. They are continually disappointed in their purpose to obey God's will. They feel feel deeply ashamed at the thought of how often, even in things that appear little and easy, they fail entirely in keeping a good conscience and in pleasing God. Anybody? can be pretty depressing, you know, discouraging, like makes you question everything. But look at the wording here in verse 16. Mercy first, then grace. Draw near with confidence to receive mercy. What do you need mercy for? For your failures, for your sin. <laughs> so don't let your failures and your sin keep you from all you have in Christ. So if you're struggling with drift, mercy and grace. Mercy to get back on the path, grace to run. Struggling with assurance because of sin and struggle, okay, there's mercy. And then there's grace to be reminded that you're his and he's yours. Sluggishness, again, weariness, mercy and grace. Sin that's entangled you, mercy to throw it off, grace to run without it. We need to draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace so we can come with confidence even when we don't feel like it, even when we feel unworthy, even when we feel like we've blown it, even when we've got this low, dull, low-grade guilt. No. The whole point is we relate to God because of the gospel. So we can come with our sin. We can even come with our sin with confidence because of our great high priest who has taking care of our sin once and for all and made atonement. So it's amazing that this throne is a throne of grace. It's beautiful. Throne of grace. Come to the throne of grace. Isn't that sweet? It should be a throne of judgment. But this is the king of grace, so his throne is the throne of grace, and that's where we come. We've got to know that if we're going to hold fast. We need to draw near with confidence to get what we need so that we can hold fast our confession firm to the end.
In fact, listen to this. You hold fast your confession. Your confession is your amen to the truths of the gospel, right? You hold fast to them when you draw near despite feeling unworthy because you're believing the gospel. That's why you're coming. Sometimes that's what keeps us, you know, out here. So even when we sin, we come and draw near, we can do it with confidence because he knows we need mercy. He knows we need a mediator. That's why he sent Jesus. So don't leave the riches that are yours hidden away in heaven. Draw near and lay hold of them. Jerry Bridges um, retold this story. He said, some years ago, our pastor told an unusual story about a southern plantation owner who left a $50,000 inheritance to a former slave who had served him faithfully all his life. That was quite a sum of money in those days, perhaps equivalent to half a million dollars today. The lawyer for the estate duly notified the old man of his inheritance and told him that the money had been deposited for him at the local bank. Weeks went by, and the former slave never called for any of his inheritance. Finally, the banker called him in and told him again that he had $50,000 available to draw on at any time. The old man replied, Sir, do you think I can have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Not having handled money for most of his life, this former slave had no comprehension of his wealth. As a result, he was asking for 50 cents when he could have easily had much, much more. So knowing what we have is going to lead us to draw near and lay hold of what we have so that we can persevere and endure and hold fast, running the race that's set before us. So if there's any hardness in our hearts, if there's any drift, we can run into the throne room this morning because of Jesus to receive mercy and grace, to forgive our drift and our sin and to strengthen us and guard us against drift and to help us to persevere in faith following Jesus. So Hebrews 4 is so key for everyday life here in Christ. So we need to keep the gospel at the center. We need to know what we have if we're going to hold fast and hold on and persevere. Let me close by praying the benediction at, at the end of Hebrews 13 and be done. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, equip us with everything good that we may do your will working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.